A film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Ed and Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Uh, it's going 2021. <laughs> Here mm-hmm. we are. <laughs> we all had such high hopes for it. Oh, well, <laughs> we had we had high something for it, and yet, and yet, this year is yearing really very hard already. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right most haven't had a particularly busy week i i decided this week to put some time into an extremely long and long-running game series the yakuza series uh which uh started on the playstation 2 i think and like has been there's like eight mainline games then two spin-offs yes there's a, there's been 10 games in the series or related games in the series and i thought these would be a fun thing to kind of like chew away at over the year because uh, I, from what I've seen of them, they seem very fun. You know, they are, they're all games that take place in sort of the Kamurocha area of Tokyo, which I don't know if it's real or not. It feels like a very real, vibrant place. They do a really good job of giving it a, a, a feel and a sense of place and time. And for the most part, they follow this character called Kiryu, who's like a Yakuza enforcer who at the beginning of the first game uh, takes the fall for the murder of a boss that he didn't commit and then like he goes to jail for 10 years and 10 years later he gets out and you know he's trying to kind of build his life back together so it's a lot of like fights and side quests and stuff like that in this really well realized world and i've really been enjoying it and i I particularly i enjoy the shifts in tone in it because on the one hand it's quite melodramatic you know it's as i say it's all about you know conflict between gangsters and like betrayals and things like that so this kind of like big over-the-top emotional soap operatic quality to it but then also the side quests are often very goofy and silly so to give it an example of it the opening half an hour of the game starts with this like cutscene showing Kiryu standing over a body of a man who's been shot in the eye then it's a flashback to him uh beating up a bunch of people in order to get money and then there's another flashback within that flashback to how he forgot to buy a present for one of his friends and has to go and buy one. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how the whole game is. Any main story content is like you know, fairly serious, but, you know, kind of very pulpy. And then anything that's like kind of off to the side or like more about Kiryu's personal life tends to be very, very silly. And I don't know, I really I really like that bouncing back and forth of it. How's your week been culturally? My week culturally has been a mix of just, it's, I'm in that real kind of lockdown phase of really wanting to have the focus and concentration to watch something good, but the majority mm. of the time, I'm not sure how much I can take content-wise. So I've ended up watching a fair bit of stuff that feels quite mediocre um, Mm -hmm. and stuff that uh, people have been raving about and that just hasn't really been to my taste. So, for example, uh, Free Fire and Crazy Rich Asians, I found both pretty boring, which is a shame because I really love Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump 
and um, there's a lot that, you know, particularly in terms of like Constance Wu and Awkwafina in Crazy Rich Asians, but it all just kind of sprawled away for me. I also wasn't too keen on Baby Teeth, um, mm. which again I found a bit um, just a bit loose. Even though there's a lot of good stuff in there, it felt like it's a weird long form improv. And I had, there is good stuff that I've seen. I I, I want to uh, stress Ed, but I'm going to leave that for the recommendations. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Free Fire. It's been a while since I watched it. It's probably been about two years or something. But like, I remember being pretty lukewarm on Free Fire. Because like you, I like Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump, and I like pretty much everyone in that cast. And I like the premise of a whole movie that is essentially just like, you know, let's have a firefight that takes up the entire movie pretty much. But it's very much like a concept that I don't think they were quite able to pull off because it's very hard to kind of maintain interest during that time, especially if it's just a single location. Like if it was a running battle out on the streets or whatever, like maybe you could kind of sustain the momentum a bit more that way, but it's very hard to make like even a, 90 something minute film feel really captivating when it's you know just like a long firefight a long firefight with relatively little let up yeah and it's not that i'm against action per se but so much of what i love about um ben wheatley and amy jump is their dialogue and their characters and it just felt like an ensemble piece without much kind of development and it Mm. also features someone who's been in the news a lot recently um that's Mm. my awkward wincing segue into army hammer and the number of women who have come forward about his behavior and this isn't Mm. to do with if you've got a cannibal sort of edge to your sexuality bdsm you know this is shot reverse shot not call me by your kink shame but there is a lot of really terrible stuff that is kind of being masked by a lot of people who are unfamiliar with the world of kink and bdsm in general because you'd think ed you'd think by now in terms of the internet of what's going around you know but but people still are like well this is you know, just fixating on the cannibal element of it. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I was on FetLife for a little bit in my early 20s and being like, oh, this is not the place for me. Everyone is very nice, but I thought, oh no, this is very different. And, you know, they're some of the nicest, most straightforward and uh, consent-aware people I've ever engaged with. And everything that's happening on the internet is that the point is not that he's into these specific things. It doesn't matter what he's into. It's the fact that he's treating what it seems possibly hundreds of women horribly. Yeah, so to kind of like uh, jump back a little bit, there was uh, reports this week that uh, someone had leaked DMs from Army Hammer, a woman who... Uh, said she was in a relationship with him and they were generally about his him talking about as you said like having cannibalistic fantasies and talking about wanting to kind of like eat people and consume people which is 
you know, like you say, like there is nothing inherently wrong with that if that's just kind of like a fantasy that someone wants to explore. But then subsequent people kind of have come forward and says that, you know, he was not very respectful of the boundaries that, you know, they would try to establish with him concerning, you know, various, you know, kind of role play fantasy stuff, like not paying attention to safe words and generally being, you know, it's generally being a case of kink going into abuse, which is basically where if someone is not, you know, respectful of the boundaries that people set up and the limitations of it, then they're just hurting people for their own gratification. And that seems to be the situation that has arisen with Army Hammer on what seems like multiple occasions that he just seems to, you know, allegedly just seems to enjoy hurting people and that it's not necessarily, you know, an explanation of, like, a fantasy that other people are being allowed to take part in, kind of, and, and enjoy themselves. And that, you know, he, being, you know, incredibly handsome, very charismatic, you know, is able to, you know, abuse people that way, quite like, kind of, like, bringing them in and then springing something on them that they have not prepared for or willing to go along with. Absolutely. It's just horrendous. And in terms of our remit on this here podcast um he's now it's been reported that he's pulled out of a rom-com with j-lo i think called shotgun Mm -hmm. wedding and again pulled out of is you know quite a um euphemistic phrase sometimes um Mm. especially given the reasons that he gave because like yeah he was saying oh he didn't want to be away from his kids or something like that but like other people were pointing out that because he's recently divorced and he's like, he's not really spending a lot of time with his kids anyway. Mm-hmm. So def- definitely feels like, you know, people, someone's saying, yeah, you should probably not be involved with this because when this comes out, this is all anyone's going to talk about in the press junket. So we would rather not have to deal with that. So like that, that seems to have been the, the, the initial first consequence of it, whatever spin they're trying to put on it. Hmm. And in other news about uh, terrible people, um, it's not not allegedly terrible in this instance either, uh, it was announced today that Phil Spector had passed away, the uh, music producer and murderer, and not, as the BBC said, talented but flawed <laughs> music yeah. producer, which, you know, even if it was flawed but talented would be slightly better, like at least foreground the uh, flaws. But yeah, talented but flawed certainly seems like a very mild uh, way to describe someone who, A, killed someone and was convicted of their murder, but also, even before that, had like a fairly well-documented history of abusing women that he was romantically involved with and also uh, <laughs> bands he you know, worked with routinely pulling guns on people in the studio, running the gamut in terms of uh, quality from the Ramones to Star Sailor. Because, of course, uh, he produced their second album, which I I only remember because there was a big feature on it in Q magazine where they were just kind of like talking about how awful they found working with him. And uh, yeah, not not the the brightest spot in anyone's career there. But yeah, like Phil Phil Spector, obviously very influential, all the, the wall of sound stuff that he kind of pioneered and that other people took and build on. But you can't really discuss him separately from his work because so much of what he was doing around those sessions was tied into the awful things he was doing because the people he was abusing were often people he was working with. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
where to start, Ed. It's, I mean, even even headlines that aren't as egregious as the BBC one that was corrected after mm-hmm. um, very uh, correct outcry. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just ridiculous because this has all happened in the hour just before we've come on to record. And mm. so it's that point where I'm at the sort of um, real, like more input Johnny Five stage of just like scrolling through Twitter. But, you know, even Twitter says music producer and convicted murderer. Mm-hmm. And it's like when OJ goes, I could understand, you know, controversial uh, athlete and alleged murderer. But, you know, mm. like you say, it's not just the fact that he murdered Lana Jean Clarkson, who was an actor and again is is not mentioned anywhere near enough. Although, again, there's a good corner of Twitter being like, this is this is the woman he killed. It doesn't matter about his wall of sound. It doesn't matter what his production. Because the thing is that like someone else will do it. I'm not a believer mm. in the kind of unique, talented genius. He was the one who happened to do it. And that can be factual, but it doesn't need to have the um, kind of adoration attached when we know what he was like. And again, how much of a genius are you if you have to wave a gun in front of people's faces? Like mm. that's, that's not genius. That's something else. So we'll move on to our main topic for this week. And it's going to be uh, blind spots for you and I, sort of areas of cinema that we feel we don't know uh, enough about. This I, I wanted to discuss this because last year I was like, uh, back in December, I was putting together my yearly blog post where I write about like the best older movies that i watched that year and one of them was the movie pickpocket by jia zhang a chinese movie from 1997 and in writing my blog post about it like i was looking at details of the movie and of jia zhang who's a, a filmmaker whose work i've really grown to like in the last couple of years and i noticed in that like I said oh he's part of the sixth generation of kind of like chinese um filmmakers and i was like oh I don't know what that is. I didn't know that they that's how they broke up uh, generations in uh, Chinese cinema. And also, I don't really recognise a lot of these names and then going back through and like, yeah, obviously that sends you on a, a, a kind of like a rabbit hole of looking at who all the filmmakers are, who are part of that generation and what the fifth and fourth and third generations and all that were. And it just kind of made me realise that even though I have watched like a bunch of movies from China over the years and I've liked what I've seen... I really don't know a huge amount about Chinese cinema, even though it's this you know kind of huge body of work that goes back until the earliest days of cinema and has produced a lot of great filmmakers who have produced work either within China or who or have gone to work elsewhere. And it just made me, yeah, like I say, realise that that was like a huge blind spot for me and something that maybe I should want to correct. So I thought it'd be fun this week for us to talk about our blind spots but also how blind spots kind of form certainly in my case as someone who never studied film academically who just like watched a lot of movies and like read books on it I feel like not having that structure does kind of lead me to have like a bunch of blind spots because like my whole approach to to watching films has been very much kind of like broad but not too deep in a lot of cases like i'll try and watch movies by 
major directors, but like unless they're someone who I really dig like massively, that it's not necessarily a case that I'll like really go deep on anyone's filmography or if there's like a particular historical scene that's considered important i'll watch like the five major movies from that that scene to kind of get a, a handle on it and then you know not perhaps go much deeper than that i really relate to everything you've just said there ed and i think a lot of that is to do with me personally there's only like a few and again it will be like directors or actors particularly sort of early on I was starting to really develop my film taste so it would be things like well I mean again in terms of what was age appropriate and what I could actually go and see so there's a lot of like Studio mm-hmm. Ghibli and I think Studio yeah. Ghibli was the first thing where it was like it was actually a um, production company um, mm. that I leaned towards and the same sort of growing up with Disney as well and I think those are still and, and Pixar as well today they are the only kind of kind of callbacks to like the sort of factory you know say golden age of hollywood where it's like oh you know there are recurring actors and directors but really it's this brand name or this studio name Mm, that is so so delve into a lot of those and then kind of getting into my teens i'm trying to think of you know where i actually kind of got in on the ground floor as it were with with people but definitely during my a level it was things like um kind of just even being introduced to various like new waves and mm-hmm. i'm so grateful for my a level to be like yeah there was this thing called the french new wave but there's also like <laughs> new waves in in the east <laughs> like um and that was probably like my biggest introduction to um uh Chinese cinema, Korean cinema, mm. so a lot of Wong Kar Wai, and I'm really delving into that. I think because I hadn't seen anything like his films before, in terms of his use of stretch printing and the way that he developed things. Have I gone back to Chinese cinema? Ed, not much, no. And mm. there, I, I really feel that kind of. I think because you want to get a sense of things, that there is this kind of like skimming across the top and getting your reference points rather than really being able to go deep into these these different types and i feel like my sort of track record with world cinema has really dropped off and i think it's because i have been leaning on netflix so much over the past couple of years and Mm. realizing with distribution apart from a couple of big hitters like let's say parasite you have to be signed up to something like movie in order to just get access to these kinds of films like i'm i still feel sad about the demise of tartan films as a distributor yeah because that was where you would get all of the really you know often often horror like k horror stuff but again just things that you wouldn't necessarily find in theatrical release or where would you get stuff printed and so yeah and i think the thing about netflix is that we like to think oh because it's a global company and because you can see netflix originals from around the world but that's not the same as having a strong back catalog archive program of world cinema Mm -hmm. yeah it it makes me not to sound so kind of like 
you know, kind of like nostalgic, whatever. But it does make me miss Blockbuster, which again is not a thing to be terribly nostalgic for because obviously Blockbuster like destroyed a whole thriving industry of smaller video rental chains, particularly here in the US. But one of the things I used to like about the Blockbuster, particularly the one on the Sheffield reference, Ecclesall Road, hey. which was always on my walk home from work is I would always like to go in there and just kind of like wander up and down the aisles, particularly the foreign language aisle, because you could kind of like go up and down and you'd, you'd find stuff that had like an arresting cover or something that was, oh, you'd like, like you talking about getting into Korean cinema, but you'd like just see something, oh, this is from the guy who did The Good, The Bad and The Weird, and I've not seen it, let's check that out or whatever. And I think like there's not really that same incentive with netflix to kind of go deep on anything because they produce so much of their own original content that like the now that there isn't really much of a priority for them to get you to you know watch whatever they have in their back catalog because they much rather that you watch bridgerton or whatever but not to you know throw any shade on, on bridgerton or anything but like that's what they're geared towards uh, i'm sure if if blockbuster produced their own original directed dvd films those would be at the forefront of the store because <laughs> that would that would be their incentive as well but because they were just there saying hey you know rent five movies for a week or whatever you know that would be what i would do i just like wander in grab uh, grab five random films and then you know go and uh watch them all over the next couple of days and that was another big part of like my scattershot approach to learning about movies was like not really having much sense of a direction of what i wanted to watch it was just basically kind of like oh yeah i heard someone say this movie was good once and then checking it out and you know that meant i watched a lot of movies that maybe not on the radar necessarily or weren't necessarily the most high profile things of any given director's work but you know that at the very least allowed me to kind of have this very broad uh, awareness of lots of different stuff that was going on and I feel like that has been lessened considerably since physical uh, rental stores kind of started dying out and got replaced by you know red boxes which are fine if you want to kind of pick up something that maybe only played in theatres for a few weeks or whatever but isn't great if you want to watch you know some French film from the 80s that you've been meaning to see yeah, and Ed, I'm with you. Like, I know movie are doing amazing things with their library, um, mm. and movie sort of again being a global, um, having sort of many global territories, and you know, rights are still really tricky in sort of the age of um, digital intellectual property. But I think they're doing amazing work in terms of trying to get as much available and accessible mm. in that. But I really, oh, let's just let's just sink into the warm bubbly embrace of nostalgia shall we because i <laughs> definitely think if it weren't for love film i wouldn't mm. have had the kind of boost at like 14 15 that i had because the thing with love film as i've probably said many times before gather around children listen to you <laughs> listen to grandma is that you would just have this huge wish list and whatever became available would be sent out to you so mm. it wasn't like oh what am i going to watch right now scrolling through endless 
choice because it's literally all there on demand. It was to supply and demand. It was like, great, we'll just kind of keep chopping down the list because we only have a certain number of DVDs <laughs> and we have yeah. to work around that. And because of that, I think there was a real kind of novelty of like, oh, what three have I got today? And I would just kind of rattle through them over a couple of evenings because I have friends. And um, and I it, that's the same. And how I managed to sort of collate that wasn't necessarily love film pushing anything on me in particular, other than like new releases. But it was also it was a big mix of reading Empire um, mm-hmm. magazine, the big you know the big Tashin books, like yeah, you know those those kind of um, decade retrospectives. Um, I was kind of you know again fortunate enough to have family and people around me who are like oh if you like films cool we'll get you books on films not just books great that gives us a bit more focus in terms of what what the hell to get a teenage girl Mm. that's appropriate for birthdays and christmas and so i just you know read those and just put them on the list and um just read anything on drew's scriptorama that i wasn't old enough to rent yet (laughs) (laughs) um and that did give me again it's that thing where it's like i don't think i could talk for example about 60s cinema at length but it's like i had the opportunity to watch darling and alfie and the knack and smashing mm. time through a mix of my um again and i keep talking about my film studies a level because it's possibly the best formal education i've ever had because <laughs> um, it talks about the business as well and now i'm not quite sure whether it's a bit of kind of getting older and knowing what I like and I think because mm. I still really want to see stuff that's new um but obviously that's been nigh on impossible this year I, I'm not really sure what it, it was really difficult to actually just get a top 10 of films from 2020 for example when we did our roundup um because I had just been watching so much tv um because obviously that's not really disrupted that much during no. the pandemic but i do think that part of me is a has got maybe a little bit oh quite lazy i think partly because of the shift to digital but partly because it, it it's difficult it's got more expensive to go to the cinema i'm not mm. i'm not a student anymore i don't um i don't work for a cinema anymore so i can't get free tickets <laughs> i can't just yeah, take a punt that was an advantage oh that was oh, the perks and now it's like it and it's difficult because we all have a comparison now it's not just oh i'll pay eight pounds to go and see a film in the cinema it's now that eight pounds is my netflix for the month Mm, and as everything the squeeze is getting tighter and i am across like a few different subscription services and i don't know you know how many more i'll plump out for because i was seeing today i I haven't seen eighth grade by Bo burnham and Mm. i really want to and I was trying to find where it was. And I was like, oh, cool. It seems to be on Sky Cinema, which means a Sky Cinema pass. Now I can do a trial for a week, but then that's another £12 a month. <laughs> and I'm already paying like a tenner for the entertainment pass and all of this. It's just like, oh, God. Um, so, but but again, a lot of it is also just me. Like I haven't been in the in the sort of frame to watch the more kind of obscure stuff 
and I remember going to see Chantal Ackerman's film. Um, is it Letters from Home? Like, yeah. Yeah. News, uh, news from Home. News from Home. Thank you, Ed. So it's News from Home, which is um, letters just in voiceover of kind of footage of, of New York. And it's such a brilliant film and hypnotic and strange, but I wouldn't have maybe sought that out. It's just because it was showing at the CCA in Glasgow. And I was like, mm. oh, this looks great, and I'm free, and I'll go. And I've I've still really not watched like any Agnes Varda. Ed. Like my personal shame is is that there is such a huge wealth of um, feminist cinema that I I've barely scratched the surface of. And I think it's partly you know oh how am I going to find it and and watch it and give it the full attention. <laughs> that it deserves given that my brain feels like sludge most of the time rather than getting caught up with being frustrated at the lack of it now you know mm. i i don't know yeah it definitely feels like over the last decade or so like things have become so atomized in terms of where things are like say you know back in the the days of blockbuster or whatever you know, it may not have the best selection. Like, I doubt the blockbuster on Eckersall Road would have, like, too many Agnes Varda films kicking around <laughs> that you could rent. But, you know, they might have Cleo from 5 to 7, so you could kind of at least see that one. And I feel like now that there isn't that kind of sense of a central place that you can go, and even the ones that do a better job of it, like Mubi or over here, the Criterion channel, they still don't quite get the kind of experience of being able to rifle through or scroll through you know all of these different titles and find something that you know really appeals to you just yesterday i was talking to someone on twitter about how the criterion channel like interface that they have um is way worse than the interface that they had for filmstruck when that was around mm-hmm. sort of very very briefly because one of the things i really liked about filmstruck was like if you wanted to browse all their movies, that was an option, but you could also search it by a director. They had a whole database of director that you could go through. You could do it by decade and you could do it by country and you could do it by genre. And it was super duper easy to use. And you could like totally think, yeah, oh, you know, I, I, I haven't watched a ton of Japanese movies. Like, you know, I've seen Kurosawa or whatever. I may, you know, I may want to see something else. You could just go to Japan and then suddenly they're all there and you could see, everything that they had listed from, you know, the 1930s to today or whenever their most recent movie was. And that, to me, just seems like such an intuitive way of doing it in a way that, you know, is, is very genuinely very helpful for helping people find stuff through these kind of, like, broad categories that are the most helpful for helping people to explore, you know, certain genres or, you know, national cinemas if they want to. And the Criterion Channel, for whatever reason, didn't, maybe it's just super duper expensive to carry over that kind of functionality and to make it all work which is totally understandable because you know all this stuff costs money but like theirs is just very much like you know they have their curation when you log in and it'll tell you what collections they have which are very cool at highlighting stuff that they have and there is the option to kind of like scroll through lots of different titles and you can search but it's still not as good for helping you stumble on things that you've never heard of before as opposed to like it's great if you know exactly what you want to watch and you want to try and find it but like that's 
not great, I think, for the sense of exploration that you want, <laughs> which is like stumbling upon things. Like there's there's less of that, and I feel like a lot of streaming services are just not set up with the intention of helping people stumble across something. Even like the old Netflix interface back when they had way more older movies was better for that sort of stuff before they made it more focused on pushing their own originals. Absolutely. And do you think this is kind of mainly to do with the algorithm, essentially, that we're just kind of being fed back what we already sort of think we're going to like? I think that's definitely the problem with Netflix. Because mm. like, I know, like, it hasn't happened in a while, but, like, there was a period where, like, Netflix would release some kind of, like, much-hyped movie like Roma, something that, you know, like, cinephiles would get very excited about. And then people would go on Twitter and complain about how it's not being put on the front page, how people are supposed to know about it. And then someone else would be like, I don't know what these people are talking about, I see it. And, like, that was clearly there. It's like, oh, there's a disconnect here that, like, this person clearly doesn't use netflix that much so it wouldn't show up for them because the algorithm doesn't think they want to see it whereas this person does and it knows what they would want and they would know they would like to see roma so i do feel like the algorithmic nature of it you know does create these very disparate experiences i think criterion is more just across the board like everyone sees the same thing because they're always highlighting the like whatever their new category is so there's always kind of like something new to see and there's like a churn there, which I think is is good in the sense of, you know, like they're always highlighting whatever their new collections are, but is maybe not great in terms of their huge back catalogue. Honestly, the best thing they have there for advertising their back catalogue is their thing just saying what's expiring that month because you can just go through and think, oh, wow, I should watch all these Bill Plimpton movies that are going to expire in the next like two weeks or whatever. Yeah. Um, Everything else they have isn't as good for for discovery and for you know helping you overcome uh, blind spots as this episode is meant to be about. But we've kind of, kind of wanted uh, wandered a field, but which is fine. Uh, do you have any directors specifically that you think of where you think oh everyone talks about them or they're they're considered very important but you've never really seen any of their stuff? The the big one for me in looking through it was Edward Yang the Taiwanese filmmaker who sadly died very young in the mid-2000s, but who directed things like Yi Yi and uh, Taipei Story and uh, A Brighter Summer Day, which is probably his most famous. And uh, I always read in the voice of Dr. Zoidberg saying, blood thicker water. Um, <laughs> that's just how my brain works. Um do you have any like that where you think, yeah, oh, everyone says like yeah, Edward, Edward Yang, truly one of the great filmmakers, gone too soon. But like, I have seen no movies, and I always feel really bad about it because I do like what I've seen of Taiwanese cinema, and he seems to be kind of like the one, like the like the um, the reign of Erna Fassbinder of it, like the guy that everyone points to and says, oh my god, imagine what he could have done if he'd lived. Oh yeah, Fassbinder's one who I fairly scratched the surface of. Awesome Wells, I've never seen. Citizen Kane, Ed. Wow. I've I've tried. <laughs> Failed mm. miserably. Maybe this is the year. I've got nothing but time. Well, you need to see it to understand Mank. <laughs> oh, that's true, actually. I do have Mank on my <laughs> on my list. So I should probably um sometimes it just feels like such an undertaking, right? Like mm. I would love to be more familiar with I still think I'm pretty behind on Scorsese. Like I've mm-hmm. seen, you know, I've seen The Irishman, 
plot that in. But yeah, Fassbinder, a lot of um, generally sort of European canon, Agnes Varda. I think Bollywood is my biggest blind spot. Like, yeah. I've barely watched any Indian film. So people like Sajit Ray, even, who who are not really sort of um, in the kind of Bollywood um, tradition, um, but just it, India, you know, the entire <laughs> subcontinent. He's kind of the, res- the, he's like the most respectable one for like cinephiles to get into. Yeah, right. Like, and he's always sort of lauded in that way. Um, mm. Nuri Bilgis Silam, again, Turkish. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, again, a lot of, I realise like so many of these people are also, um, again, it's this kind of, like you said there, the sort of cinephilia of it. It's um, who is kind of brought into can. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. and lauded in in that way, I feel like there's so many sort of like screenwriters, and and I think for me it's less. My blind spots feel less auteur led, um, whether it's you know directors or writers or roughly sort of actors, and it is more kind of um, it is world cinema really for me, and has been for a few years because I can't remember exactly how I managed to sort of drop off with so many things and I ended up going on a big sort of like Italian cinema binge for a while like um Bellini and Paolo Sorrentino Mm -hmm. um, because a good friend of mine showed me the consequences of love and I was like this is incredible and then just Mm. had to be like Vivo and like all these just kind of like jumping through that back catalogue and I think yeah for me it is I think it kind of comes back to the idea of like this sort of what what's a classic and what you must watch because again there's mm-hmm. this you know um which I think is different from the canon the idea of a must watch and the sort of pressure which is very different from the hype of a film that's just coming out but the almost kind of cult like um pressure and the light that comes on behind someone's eyes when they're saying you have to see <laughs> this film mm-hmm. or this that has a different edge of like I'm not going to take you seriously until you see this and I've been yeah I've been guilty of that absolutely and really cinephilia should be about I think exactly that exploration like you were saying earlier and that discovery and the favor that someone is doing you by being like oh if you like this you'll love this um mm. like if you're interested in Sofia Coppola how about this um film called Silent Light that has a lot of kind of <laughs> got a lot of um space in the frame and it's very you know all this kind of weird stuff and I think it's hard to think of a blind spot without the context of the pandemic because I'm not mm. kind of hanging out with people or like you know film festivals as well like yeah Kind of not being able to really like be there and get the sense of like who's coming up kind of before the critics and like the big PR churning machine because I think we're all at the we're all at the mercy of them at the moment because that's the only way we can interact with them. It's not like mm. you know, and I still haven't seen something like an online equivalent of oh my god i just feel like i've discovered this filmmaker and i'm gonna rave to everyone about them you know yeah 
So I wonder if we had this conversation about 18 months ago, how differently my blind spots would be. Because at the moment, Ed, I realise I'm coming to this. I'm like, I just feel like that's all I have (laughs) is a blind spot. And I'm falling back on what I already know because there is so much unknown. I think one of the things about, I think this is true, I think of, any kind of like art form that you're getting into, but particularly one that's been around for, you know, like a hundred years, like film. And there's a global movement where every company has, every company, every country has its own national flavor and its own national cinema. It's like, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. Like, I remember when I first started really getting into movies, which was also like you through um, Love Film, like, so much of that was driven by particularly like if, if I would point to like the one specific event that was really kind of like spurred me on was watching um, Martin Scorsese's A Personal History of American Cinema, which is him just talking about all the movies that he loved and that were important for him as a filmmaker. And, you know, it's like three hours of him just listing movies um, and like pretty much just what I did was I just started writing them down and then adding them to net to uh, love film as I was watching it pretty much. And that was like a huge gateway thing for me to kind of watch all these things. And like, as I was doing that, I thought, oh, I, I'm learning so much about movies. Like I know about all of these different things, like, you know, the big heat or whatever, you know, I'm learning all about these different film noirs, films noir. And then like, after you've done that, you suddenly realize like, oh, wow, like the filmmakers who made these made like 70 movies. <laughs> and like they all sound pretty good. Uh, and then you kind of like start digging into them more and you're learning about different writers and different actors who are doing all this different stuff. And like, it's such a vast art form that really and truthfully, like it would be weird if you didn't have blind spots. Like the only people who I think wouldn't have blind spots about movies would have been like the Lumiere brothers. Cause they were <laughs> doing the first ones. <laughs> Like we can definitely say we've seen all of them because we've seen all of ours and we've all seen all of Melier's <laughs> and that's pretty much it. So I feel like it's important. I I do feel like having blind spots is like the best impetus in some ways to kind of keep exploring and to yeah. keep seeing new stuff. For me, that's kind of what it's always driven uh, by. Like just suddenly thinking about this guilt about Edward Yang because uh, me not having seen any of his work is definitely something that is like maybe think that should be a thing I should do this year try and see as many of his films as are available and I think pretty much all the major ones are fairly readily available which is is nice for people being able to kind of like follow his work or like the work of um, Naruhiko Obayashi who we talked about last year when he passed away about like how pretty much the only one of his movies that's really widely available in the west is House which is a, a fantastic fun movie but not necessarily indicative of his kind of like very broad career and thinking about how I should try and make the effort to try and track down some more of his work so that I can actually say, oh yeah, this this like major filmmaker who I only know one film of, I can actually converse and say like, oh yeah, I know why his motorcycle, Her Island, is like one of the great movies or whatever, which everyone seems to say it is, but as I've not had a chance to see it, you know, it, it remains a blind spot for me. You're right, Ed, totally. And I think, it's a, an important reminder of like, well, why do we love cinema in the first place? And it's because it can keep going and mm. we're never going to be done. <laughs> there's, yeah. so, there's so much to watch. There will be so much to watch. And 
the point is to be part of the conversation, not to dominate it. And mm. I genuinely would much rather listen to people talk about their favourite films than, you know, and, and to be honest about my ignorance, and I think a lot of that does come from the more you watch and the more you realise, oh, I'm into this because of this and my ego can take the back seat or just get out of the car altogether. I'm I'm really, really sort of signing up for Ego Dead. <laughs> that's, what, <laughs> um, that's my hope for this year. And yeah, to be, but to really be involved in the conversation, to talk back and forth is great. Like one of my uh, memories of one of the last nights out I had towards the end of uh, 2019, um, I was standing at a Christmas do uh, with two of my friends and we'd all seen Marriage Story and we all felt differently about it. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing because no one was right and no one was wrong. That wasn't <laughs> the point, but we'd all seen it and we were all able to enrich in our experience by understanding how each other saw it. And that's the point, surely. Well, here's to looking forward to arguing about Barnback's adaptation of White Noise when it eventually comes out. Yeah, oh, gimme. So we'll end this week's episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, I have managed to this week in terms of correcting a blind spot slash enriching my life. Mm. Got deep into the work of Chris Gethard, who oh, nice. I've been aware of for a long time, like for his uh, cable access TV show, his kind of involvement in um, UCB and improv comedy. And because I rewatched Don't Think Twice, like the Big Lears film, sort of following mm. an improv group and the various um, fractures and challenges that they face. And I realised, oh, I've never actually seen any of his stand up and i watched his show career suicide which is brilliant it's mm. um it's actually an hour and a half but it totally flies by um and he's got this really lovely grasp of getting across exactly what uh mental illness is like but also kind of without resorting to like cheap platitudes or sentimentality how quite just quite how funny his experience of it can be now that he's in a better place and able to manage it and he also has um a podcast called beautiful anonymous Mm, which i've seen live oh no way i saw him do that live in london um a couple of years ago which was pretty cool oh god that must have been amazing so for anyone who's not familiar with it beautiful anonymous has a really uh simple and effective premise that is an anonymous caller who remains anonymous and anything that is identifying is um, taken out in post, calls Chris and they have a conversation for exactly an hour. And typically this caller has a, something that they want to get off their chest, but it's not like therapy. It is genuinely like a conversation. But because it's with a stranger, I think it's just amazing listening to Chris Gethard's just general like empathy and mm-hmm. curiosity. And I feel like listening to it vicariously I just feel like I'm in a better place. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think Chris Gethard's now my hero for <laughs> the foreseeable because my own mental health has been somewhat shaky of late and there's something about 
listening to better human interactions ones that are kinder that also don't necessarily let any let anyone off the hook um has been a real balm and um a necessary antidote to the majority <laughs> of people how people are interacting with each other at the moment so that is uh, chris gethard career suicide and beautiful anonymous yeah i'll uh second those career suicides great i often think very fondly of his description of after his after a thing happens to him three livia oh, sopranos just kind of like asking each other questions it's just yeah, a very that's, fun that's my favorite funny. bit too <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, i'd also i'm i'm not sure if it's behind the paywall or not anymore but um he did a get an episode of hollywood handbook the uh, incredibly passive aggressive and very funny uh podcast from sean clements and hayes davenport years ago where they talked about the time they all worked on a short-lived sitcom called big lake and it's incredibly funny because the entire premise is they act as if big lake is this like hugely important seminal work and it's a show that no one's ever heard of and so they kind of like have this like really long conversation where he's being depicted as this like monomaniacal genius who's constantly driving them to distraction, even though it's a show that literally no one remembers and they think barely anything about. It's very, very funny. Uh, so if that's no if that's behind the pay if that's available anywhere and it's not behind the paywall at Eowulf, then uh, it's well worth checking out. I am gonna recommend a video game that I have been playing called Spiritfarer, which is available on the Switch, the PS4, and I guess the PS5 as well and the Xbox One. It's a game where you play as essentially death. You, at the start of the game, you take over for Charon, the uh, boatman of the dead, and you kind of travel around to all these different islands. You meet all these different people who are dead and who you are trying to kind of usher into the afterlife by helping them fulfill some sort of last bit of business that they have in the world of the living. It's a very sweet game. It's very sad and funny and philosophical about the nature of life and death. It's beautifully animated. It kind of looks a little bit like you're playing a sort of an anime, which is is very cool and very nicely done. Uh, it's very wistful and very enjoyable to play. It has all these different mechanics, like you can fish, you can plant, uh, and kind of like grow resources. There's lots of like chopping down logs and things like that, so you can build additions to your boat and make it kind of like look nice and everything for the people who inhabit it and it's just this really kind of like fascinating collection of all of these different mechanics wedded to this like really kind of like sweet beautiful central story of you going around trying to help all these people mm. and it's really good everyone said it was one of the best games of last year and i was really glad i finally picked it up so that's spiritfarer which as i said is available on a bunch of different consoles if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, or all the usual places. You can also uh, rate us and review us and recommend it to your friends. That's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.